what do you suppose that genuine Christianity ought to look like? That's a question I think every genuine Christian at some point asks themselves and asks the Lord. Genuine Christianity is in its essence, of course, invisible. It's a matter of the inner man, the spirit, the heart, the true self. However, if there is a genuine inside, it will be certainly showing up on the outside. You can't be born again spiritually and it have no effect on your life. That's actually an impossibility. If your heart is new, then your motives are new. Your desires are new and your decisions will be made differently. And decisions are visible things. A new heart is visible even in one's demeanor, one's tone of voice, one's expressions, etc. So genuine Christianity has certain marks, characteristics, or signatures that show up in the conduct of our lives. Now some of these things come fairly easily, but the reality is that new life in Christ does not appear in behavior as automatically as I think we would wish that it would, or hope that it would sometimes. It requires the use of effort. It requires the use of what we might call the means of grace. That is, God tells us to do certain things that increase our growth, our spiritual growth. Being born of the Spirit is a very radical change of your very nature. But it still leaves you, when you're born, as an infant. And you have to grow. Growth requires nourishment. Growth requires coaching and learning and exercise. These things for growth come from living the life that God chose and reveals in the scripture and what he, and as he himself would say it to us, in the presence of other people, other Christians. Church life is where you grow, especially when accompanied by our own diligence in prayer and in study and in service to other people. Last week we talked about spiritual gifts in the first verses of Romans here. Romans 12, which every Christian has. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. For what purpose? For the good of all. That's what the Bible says. That's why you're given a gift. We grow when we exercise the use of our gifts and receive the benefit of other people exercising their gifts. We minister to them, they minister to us. And that can only happen, obviously, in a context of relationships with other Christians. And that's where church life comes in. The gifts Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8, occur not randomly in life, but really in the context of a church body. By church, I mean a community of believers organized according to New Testament principles, not just Sunday morning stuff. This isn't church. You are the church. We're gathering on Sunday morning and doing worship, but church is all the interaction that goes on between us with other believers anytime, any place. Spiritual gifts, we talked about prophecy and serving and teaching and exhorting and encouraging and giving and leading and showing mercy. That's some of the things that Paul happens to list here. Those are given primarily for the use in a church context. And by, again, church context, I don't just mean here on Sunday morning. I mean as we relate to each other in our lives and during the week, different kinds of circumstances, through the Bible in a year, whether you're a Bible club or a Bible study or you go skiing this next weekend if you're in junior high or whatever the thing is. All of that are, is where we interact and exercise our gifts and receive the benefit of other people's gifts. We are one body, Paul tells us in verse 5. Members of one another. Members of one another. There's an organic unity 
to the church. And that's how we should see it. That's how we should live. Those other people around the church are your brothers and sisters. And with them you are members of God's household and the body of Jesus Christ. And that carries with it wonderful privileges as people have shared even this morning about people who prayer and support each other and all of that. But also it carries with it great responsibilities. Just as we have responsibilities to our own families, we have responsibilities to our spiritual family. In fact, um, if you really study the Gospels and what Jesus said, your obligations to your spiritual family are even higher than to your blood family. The church is a God-ordained institution, just as the family is a God-ordained institution. So we grow as we participate in church life, giving and receiving, ministering our gifts, being ministered to. Our new birth begins to show signs of maturity when we do that. But there are forces arrayed against us. There are influences and even intelligences that find spiritual maturity a threat and want to shut it down. In traditional church lingo, those three opponents of our growth in Christ are the world and the flesh. And what's the third one? Come on, you guys. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Thank you. Somebody knows traditional church lingo. You guys must all be very non-traditional folks, right? The world is the way our culture tries to mold us. And that was the very first thing Paul addressed, right? In uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, the common way of things, the way of the world doesn't like it when we step out of line with the way the world is. Try to be virtuous and impeccably honest and pure in your life and the world will see you as some kind of very strange creature, an oddity. The flesh is our own weakness and sinfulness, the pull of our old self, the habits of sin that we can't attribute to anything except our own darkness. And the devil, of course, is God's enemy, Satan, who desires to thwart God's work in the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are powerful opponents, especially to the immature, but to all of us. Now, these opponents make the Christian life then one of effort and one of struggle, because to overcome the world and not be like everybody else to overcome our own wicked inclinations, which can be very powerful, to overcome the devil who's been practicing a very long time messing with people's heads. That takes effort. It takes struggle. In fact, the New Testament calls it warfare. And you don't win wars by not being involved. Because authentic Christianity is constantly being assaulted by these opponents. And if we are paying attention, we would notice very heavy casualties on our side of the conflict. It is hard enough to be a Christian, but our opponents make it easy in a culture like ours to be compromised, to wear the uniform of Christ, but not be in the war. In other words, I'm a Christian, I just don't want to be involved in Christianity. If war is going on and the enemy is hard to defeat, wouldn't you delight to have strategies that are proven where you could keep your enemy from trying? I'm sure the Marines would love it if they walked into some uh, bristling weapons town in Afghanistan and the guys are just kind of lounging around and, oh, there's the Marines. I'm sure that's the way they would prefer it rather than having everybody at their post, traps laid, 
eyes keen, weapons ready. Satan wants us to be in the mode of, well, you know, I'm a little too busy for that, and there's other things I've got to do. And Satan cannot defeat God. He cannot stop the march of the church. He knows that. We are here to stay. He knows that. But what if he can simply distract us or preoccupy us or win us over as regards our enthusiasm or our zeal so we will make the Lord a secondary concern in our lives? Then he's happy. He's done a big part of what he needs to do if he can get that to be the case. That is a great victory. When the days of battle come, then he shows up in full strength and we're still trying to figure out who's really on our side. And where did everybody go? And, and uh, what's going on? And uh, That's what he does. One way our side is compromised or corrupted is simply distraction, which means a loss of perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, We walk by faith, not by... Good, you know the Bible better than traditional church lingo. That's good. We walk by faith, not by sight. When you walk by sight, your attention and your energy are given to the seen world. The things you can see and touch. So what becomes the most important things, or what matters most, are seen things, which have stopped what Jesus called mammon. Now that's a wrong perspective. Why is that a wrong perspective? Because what is seen is passing away. It is temporary. That's where we get at that word temporal. Talk about the temporal world. That's a world that's locked in time and someday it's going to be gone. Therefore, it is less substantial and less important than what is lasting and eternal. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Well, what is lasting and eternal? Well, God is. The souls of men are. Truth is. Virtue and love are lasting. God's kingdom, which we sang about a little bit ago, is lasting. Over and over, Jesus warns us to be investing in what is eternal. God's kingdom should occupy much of our thoughts and the use of our time. It should be in view, actually, in all of our dealings. Even out there in that rough secular world we have to deal with sometimes. The right perspective is an eternal perspective. And with this in mind, we can look at the next section in Romans chapter 12 here this morning, following Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. Now he says, we all have gifts from God to serve the whole body of Christ, his church, other members in the family of God, but there is more to it than gifts. Gifts are valuable, but they're only valuable if they are used by people who are authentically Christian in their hearts and in their choices and in their lifestyles and in their attitudes. So from verse 9 to 16, Paul gives a very full list of Christian virtues, the things one should see in the life of an authentic Christian. These are the things you should see. And he begins with the greatest virtue. But let me read that whole section first, verse 9 through 16. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Let's start with the first and greatest virtue, Christian love. You may remember that the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is given in a context also discussing spiritual gifts. There's a reason for that. People can get so into their religious thing, their capacity to do church stuff, that is maybe a gift of God that they can do it well, that they forget the primary thing, which is love. Because you can do church stuff without love. It is there that Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 13 that emptiness of spiritual gifts and spiritual activity and spiritual experiences without love. Remember what he says? If I could speak with the tongues of angels and have not love, it is nothing. If I give my body to be burned, if I feed the poor and give all the money I have to the poor and give everything away and I don't have love, he says it is nothing. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I deliver my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then he just defines and describes love. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So. For any good to come from spiritual living, love must be genuine and unfeigned. Love must be without pretense, and that's what he's saying in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Everything else follows from that. The night of the Last Supper, Jesus said to the disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What is love? Well, you know, our English word has so many meanings that you have to clarify it. If I say, if I said to some young woman, I love you, I would probably have to explain it, especially to my wife. <laughs> what do you mean when you say you love her? Because you could ter- interpret that in many different ways, right? Because our words, are, our words for love in English are so limited. The Greeks were a lot sharper linguistically. They had a well-spoken culture. They had many words for love. Love in verse 9, as it is in 1 Corinthians 13, as, as also it was used by Jesus at the Last Supper, is that word agape. That's a famous Greek word. We throw it around all the time. Oh, the agape people. Um, you know, we name little things agape this and agape that, and little kids' things are named agape. Agape is a Greek word. It means love, but it means a very particular kind of love as it's defined in the New Testament. It means divine love. It means a love that gives. In fact, the King James Bible, when English was a more varied language, uses what word? Anybody remember? In 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and charity. Because it has that idea of giving to others in it. 
I could say I love you to someone and mean I want from you. I love you. I want to possess you. But agape means I want to benefit you. It came to mean that word in really it was formulated in the New Testament. It was kind of a common Greek word. The, the Christianity really gave agape its weight. It's a love that seeks only what is good for the other person. That's what biblical love is. It's the kind of love that God has. Because love seeks the best for the one loved. So Paul's definition makes perfect sense. Love that seeks the best for the one loved is patient. Impatience being self-focused, right? Love that seeks the best for another is kind, obviously. It is not jealous. Again, jealousy is selfishness. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. What benefit is there to others when I'm boasting about myself? It does not seek its own. It seeks the blessing of others. It is not provoked. What is said or done to me really doesn't matter if the good of the other is my concern. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Same idea does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love could never find pleasure in sin for anyone because it knows that sin is a destroyer and it wants the best for them. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Needless to say, love... We live in a culture where love, as the Bible describes it, has almost disappeared from the human understanding. In fact, if you love like this, like God says to you, you will be told that you need psychological help. They'll label you codependent or something. Oh, you've got to stand up for yourself. This is what the Bible means by love. Love is consistently and faithfully acting for the good of another person or other people. I heard... Um, that goofball on TV, Bill Maher, the other night, um, mocking marriage and commitment. And he said, marriage is a medieval institution. You don't need a piece of paper to love somebody. You don't need someone telling you how to live, like a church or the government. And he's going on and on about this. The guy is like a total idiot. I mean, he is. He's like, he's witty, but he's so shallow and lacking. And marriage is a medieval institution? Sorry, it predates the Middle Ages by couple tens of thousands of years or whatever. I mean, it goes all the way back, right? Genesis chapter 2. Anybody ever read that? That is before the Middle Ages. Not too hard. <laughs> Genesis 2, which um, predates the Middle Ages by, oh, several thousand years. There's marriage. More importantly, love is not a piece of paper. It is a public declaration of commitment that no matter what comes, I will love you. That's love as God defines it. And of course he doesn't believe that marriage is important because he doesn't know what love is. He has no idea what love is, that it's a commitment for the other person's good. Many marriages do fail, but usually because vows are broken and the vows that are designed in the traditional wedding are simply an expression of the Christian definition of what love is. That's what they are. That's why people like to rewrite them now. I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall love. We think love is what the Greeks would call eros, passion, desire, 
attraction. So when that goes, love is gone, right? Christian love isn't about me. It's about the one I love. It's about working through problems because the good of the other person is my primary concern. And when I'm failing to think about the good of the other person, I am failing in love. And it is based on God's love for us. That is exactly how he loves us. Do you want him to love you the way our culture says to love? Do you want God to love you as long as you're attractive to him? Think about that. <laughs> we don't deserve it, but he saves us and calls us and justifies us and seals us with his Holy Spirit as a down payment for a glory that he promises he will give us no matter what we do. How did Paul put it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. His suffering, our good. That's love. And I say our good. He didn't give us what we wanted. He gave us and still gives us what is good for us. Love is not a doormat for people's wickedness, but it does always seek what is best for the one love. So when Christians say love is a choice, not a feeling, that's what they mean, and they're right. Our feelings may be hurt, our feelings may be wounded, but that doesn't change in any way our obligation to love. A Christian should live his life so that everyone he meets is an object of agape. Everyone. Yes, that surly, mean co-worker of yours. That unfair boss, that annoying neighbor, that imperfect spouse, everyone with whom we have contact, we should think, what would be good for that person? How can I bless that person? What does God want me to do to minister to that person? That's what we should always be thinking. That's how Jesus thought every moment of his life. Even when they were nailing nails into his hands, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He was thinking of them. What would God want me to do for that person? It's just that, I almost said simple. It's just that basic. Not simple. It would be simple if not for the world, the flesh, and the devil, maybe. But those old enemies make it not so simple, which is why such love can only be found in a spirit-led, vital Christian life. You don't just love like Jesus did. You just don't do it. It takes a lot of time on your knees, and it takes a lot of hours in this book. And first, you need to receive God's love. In fact, First John, it says we love because he first loved us. That's right. That's how we know what love is. Undeserved redemption for an unworthy creature like yourself, then you need to love God in response to that. And that means wanting what's best for Him. That He be glorified, that He be properly represented by His people, that His will be done. When God has His proper place 
and you know your standing before him in Jesus Christ, that you are his true child and you're secure in his love, then you have the freedom and the power to love other people without conditions because you're set. Paul says then, let love be without hypocrisy. It must be genuine, not pretended, not a performance. But I don't feel love toward that person. If I love them, it will be hypocrisy because love is not what I'm feeling, so I can't love them because I don't want to be hypocritical because I don't feel love. We're not talking about feelings. We're talking about love. And love is consistently and faithfully acting for the good of another person. That's what it is. Feelings are not a reliable guide. There's nothing about feelings in 1 Corinthians 13. That whole list is not emotional. Feelings are influenced by all sorts of things. You can get spores up your nose and have bad feelings. I mean, eat weird pizza and have bad feelings. All kinds of things affect feelings. Feelings come and go, ebb and flow, up and down. But they must not alter our commitment to love. Well, you're saying God doesn't care how I feel? God, of course God cares how you feel. He cares very much how you feel. So take your feelings to him and pour them at his feet. Pour your heart out. Give him your burdens and your pains and your sorrows and then love. That's the biblical way. Love in the faith that God loves you, then watch him do his thing. You do your thing and he'll do his thing. What did we just sing this morning? Seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. That's exactly the point. If Jesus acted on his feelings, we would not be saved by him. Right? He was praying in the garden and every emotion in him said, not the cross! Not the cross! There's got to be another way. Everything in him said that. Blood was pouring off his temples, he prayed so hard. He felt it so deeply. But he was not ruled by feelings alone. He took those feelings to God in prayer, agonizing prayer, intense prayer, strong feelings. But in those feelings he prayed, but not my will, but yours be done. And he followed through in love, willingly for us. Let love be without hypocrisy. The world is just weighted down with hypocritical love. Love to get, love to have, love to satisfy my needs. A Christian genuinely desires the good, the best thing for the one loved. So love must never be two-faced or phony it's so easy for people to put on a love mask. You know, that's what hypocrisy means. The word hypocrites is the Greek word for an actor. And you know how they did acting in those ancient Greek days? They had those big theaters. They didn't have microphones ringing and all that stuff. So they had these big masks they put on their face. You know, the happy mask and the sad mask. And you've seen those masks? And, and, they, and your voice went projecting through those masks like a megaphone. Hypocrites, hypocrisy, the mask. Let love be without masks, he's saying. You know what it's like. To your face, the warm smile. Hi there, how you doing? Behind your back, you know, when somebody... 
Love has to be genuine and love seeks the best to a person's face and love seeks the best behind their back too. It's the same. There's a common expression in Christianity. You know, I, I love him in the Lord. I love her as a Christian. Now, optimistically, I hope what that means when people say that is I'm really struggling with my feelings towards so-and-so, but I'm committed to their good no matter what. But I'm afraid what often that means is I smile at this person in their presence at church, but I would like to throttle them if I had half a chance. <laughs> and rather than repent of my wicked disposition, I nurture it, and it becomes so much a part of me that I don't even see it anymore. And that's deadly. A horrible product of an unexamined life. And that's what he's worried about here. Let love be without hypocrisy. So we need, as followers of Jesus Christ, to examine ourselves regularly on this issue of love because all of us fail in this, don't we? Love is a solemn obligation we owe to everyone we know and everyone we'll meet. We'll come back to love in chapter 13 of Romans, but it might help to peek ahead and think for a moment about these words in chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Anybody owe anybody anything right now? The one thing you owe to everyone is to love them. You're indebted to love them before God. That's your responsibility. Love is your debt to humanity and not humanity in general. What do people say, you know, I love mankind as people I can't stand. But every person, good people and bad people, wise people and foolish people, even your enemies, Jesus says. So love is Christianity visible, the expression of a godly heart. Love is what genuine Christianity looks like. Well, we didn't get too far in this list of exhortations to virtue this morning. Um, but we'll pick it up there next week. Love is the foundation of Christian living. And that's why it's first here on the list in verse 9. And we'll continue our look at genuine Christianity next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so that we could see what it's like. Indeed, we could not have known. We simply could not have known what love is according to you without your loving us. But now that we know, and now that you've empowered us through the Holy Spirit to be different than we are, we pray for the grace to love every day in a way that's faithful and in some way close to faithful to what you would have of us. We ask you to continue to challenge us and help us to examine our own hearts in this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.